0: This is Misdemeanor and Misconduct, the podcast A Locked Room Mystery. A murder most foul. A plot more confusing than what most great mystery writers could hope to dream of. A case that's baffled murder connoisseurs, investigators, and armchair experts alike. The strange 1931 death of this Liverpool housewife, Julia Wallace, has been the center of decades of speculation and suspicion. But for all the mystery surrounding the circumstances of the crime, it is perhaps Chief Suspect William Herbert Wallace that remains the biggest conundrum of all. William, a 52-year-old insurance salesman, seemed strangely agitated as he rode the tram to his destination that dark winter evening on January twentieth, 1931. He was looking for an address he'd never heard of before, a fact he seemed to make every passerby acutely aware of. The tram's conductor recalled how William repeatedly pestered him and his ticket inspector to alert him where to get off. When they eventually arrived at the correct stop, he seemed particularly eager to tell the conductor. I'm a complete stranger around here. From the tram, William struggled to find the house he was seeking. Did 25 Menlove Gardens East even exist? Was he on a wild goose chase? If the suspicion had entered his thoughts, he had good reason considering the unusual way the appointment had been made. A local cafe where he attended a chess club had received a call for him by phone the previous night. The caller gave his name as R.M. Qualtro. Although William only attended the chess club sporadically, the caller appeared to know he would be there that night and left a message for him with the club captain, asking to meet regarding insurance business. William had never heard of Qualtro and had never received an unsolicited call like this, but 1931 was difficult times for Depression-era Britain, and he decided to keep the appointment, with the chance there may be a valuable commission. The message directed William to meet Qualtro at 25 Menlove Gardens East the following night at 7.30 p.m. But here he was, lost in Liverpool, trying to find an address that seemed not to exist. He'd asked the tram conductors, he'd stopped people in the street, he consulted street directories, he even stopped a policeman and recounted to him the whole strange saga. On each occasion, he made a particular show of mentioning what time he was due to meet this Qualtro. Was this a cunning murderer's attempt to lay himself a tight alibi, or a flustered insurance salesman failing to make an appointment on time? As it turns out, there are lots of Menlove Gardens in Liverpool, North, South, and West. East, however, remains conspicuous in its absence. Whoever had made that call appeared to be pulling some sort of prank, sending him on a search for a fictional address. As the 7.30pm appointment evaporated into the night, William gave up and decided to return home. It was around 8:45 p.m. when John and Florence Johnston, the Wallace's next-door neighbors, saw him outside of his house at 29 Wolverton Street. He looked confused, telling them both that the front and back door were locked and he couldn't pry them open. Seemingly concerned, he asked the couple, "Have you heard anything unusual tonight?" The neighbors followed him back to the rear of the house and watched on as he tried the back door lock one more time. Oddly, this time it worked. As the Johnstons waited outside, William lit a lamp and moved carefully around the house. A few moments later, he stepped back outside, flatly stating, "'Oh, come and see. She's been killed.'" To the Johnstons' horror, William's wife, Julia Wallace, was laid out in front of the gas fire in the front room, violently battered to death. Blood splatter splashed across the walls. He was ghostly pale as he muttered, "'They've finished her. Look at her brains.'" Back in the kitchen, William noticed the locked cupboard where he kept his insurance collection money had been wrenched open and the four pounds inside had been stolen. But the house had not been ransacked and nothing else had been taken, including the money from Julia's handbag which rested on the kitchen table. At this point, John Johnston took charge, ordering his wife and William to stay in the house and touch nothing while he fetched police and a doctor. 25 minutes later, the first of a cavalcade of police officers arrived at the Wallace home. It's fair to say their handling of the case over the next few days left much to be desired. The force had been seriously weakened by a major strike in 1919 that led to half of its staff being dismissed. Those who remained often filled in roles they were not properly qualified for or experienced for. The first officers on the scene, P.C. Fred Williams and Police Sergeant Breslin, made a cursory search of the property. It looked like someone had briefly rifled around in the bedroom, but the rest of the house appeared undisturbed. The officers made one important observation. Underneath Julia's body was a partially burnt coat. Had this belonged to the killer or was Julia wearing it when she was attacked? During the next hour, a pressman from the Liverpool Daily Post arrived to do double duty as the police photographer, and John Edward Whitley McFall, a lecturer of forensic medicine at Liverpool University, was called to act as the police's forensic expert. McFall's role would prove to be the most controversial, with many commentators feeling he ruined any chance to gather the most vital piece of evidence, the time of death. Even in 1931, using rigor mortis alone to determine how long someone had been dead was completely out of date. But that's exactly what McFaul did, stating that based on the body's stiffness, he believed Julia had died at about 8pm, 45 minutes before William returned home. McFaul would later change his mind on the time of death, despite no other tests being conducted. A more detailed examination of the body revealed that Julia had been beaten severely about the head with a blunt object, the most severe blows occurring around the left ear where brain tissue could be seen protruding from the skull. The fatal blows were probably inflicted while she lay face down on the floor in front of the fire. Police believe she must have brushed the fire as she fell due to the singeing of her dress and the partial burning of the coat the detective superintendent arrived next, slightly worse for wear after an evening in the pub. Like any good policeman, drunk or not, he had his eye on William. But there was also the possibility that the crime was the work of the Anfield Housebreaker, a burglar that had plagued the local area in previous months. Perhaps one of his robberies had resulted in fatal consequences for Julia Wallace. Whoever the culprit, the attack was so violent it was obvious they must have been covered in blood. Splatter had sprayed around the whole room, blood drizzling the walls seven feet high. But an examination of the house's drains and sinks revealed that they had not been used that evening, so the assailant must have fled the property drenched in blood. A more thorough search of the house, yard, and surrounding area could uncover no trace of a murder weapon though the Wallace's cleaner would tell police a thin metal fire poker and an iron bar from the parlor were missing. Meanwhile, a subdued William sat in his kitchen and calmly explained to detectives the strange circumstances of his evening, how he'd been lured on a wild goose chase. Around midnight, he was taken to the police station to make a formal statement stating, I have no suspicion of anyone. In the following days, police began to develop some contradictory evidence regarding his involvement. A switchboard supervisor at the Liverpool Telephone Exchange had narrowed the call to the chess club to a phone booth just 400 yards from the Wallace's house. And this booth was just across from where he'd caught the tram to his chess club the night before the murder. It was just shortly before he'd arrived at the chess club that the telephone message had been received. To police, this looked like too much of a coincidence. The suspicions against him appeared to be solidifying. He and his wife were, by all accounts, a strange couple, William was frequently ill with kidney troubles, and Julia was described by their friends as quite fussy and peculiar. A former friend characterized their marriage as strained and lacking in feeling. Police also noted William's strange demeanor, especially how he'd made such a fuss on the tram and the number of people he'd stopped and asked for directions. From the Johnstons, they discovered the curious business with the lock shortly before the body had been discovered, and how they magically opened once they were present. Despite becoming the prime suspect, the reconstruction of the time surrounding the murder looked to exclude William. He was firmly placed on the tram at 7.06pm, and several witnesses came forward to say they'd seen Julia alive between 6.30pm and 645 This would only have given William a 15-minute window to kill his wife, clean himself up, change his clothes, and catch the tram. It looked extremely unlikely that he could have done it in time. Police tried to increase the window of time he might have had by staging a reenactment with a young officer sprinting to the tram stop, but it was obvious the 52-year-old insurance salesman who was in bad health was not capable of that. Whoever Qualtr was, and whatever the purpose of the call, it had succeeded in providing William with a near-cast iron alibi. The problem was, it didn't look like anyone else could have committed the crime either. No weapon, no suspects, no witnesses, and the body found in a locked house— Whoever had killed Julia appeared to have pulled off the perfect crime. Despite the lack of solid evidence in the case, the police charged William with murder. At his short four-day trial in April 1931, the prosecution tried to argue that the accused had committed the murder naked, a salacious theory that made a particular impression in the courtroom. The defense countered with the impossibility of his involvement based on timing. The defendant himself rarely showed any emotion. When called to the stand, he spoke nervously but calmly, refusing to become flustered by often aggressive questioning. Some thought his demeanor was what sealed his fate with the jury. Despite a feeling by most observers in the courtroom that the prosecution failed to make their case, and despite the judge summing up favorably towards the defense, the jurors returned in just a few hours with a unanimous verdict. You, William Herbert Wallace, have been convicted of murder upon the verdict of the jury. Have you anything to say why sentence of death should not be passed upon you according to law? He simply replied, I am not guilty. I cannot say anything else. Judge Robert Anderson Wright sentenced William to the mandatory sentence of death by hanging. There was little waiting on ceremony in 1930s England, and the execution date, barring appeals, was scheduled just a month away in May 1931. An appeal, however, did save William's life. The following month at the Court of Criminal Appeal in London, Justice Gordon Howard made the unprecedented move of overturning the guilty verdict. The case against William, he said, had not proved with that certainty which is necessary in order to justify a verdict of guilty. The result is that this appeal will be allowed and this conviction quashed. William walked out of the courtroom a free man. The press, of course, delighted in the whole thing. Lurid headlines surrounded the case from beginning to end. William was painted as an occultist, a womanizer, and most of all, an intellectual chess-playing mastermind. Straight from the pages of fiction, they thought he'd impeccably plotted a fiendish murder that both outwitted the police and generations of armchair mystery solvers. But if he really was a criminal genius, he did not have long to savor his victory. William moved to a quiet bungalow, and after suffering a recurrence of old kidney troubles, he fell ill during Christmas 1932 and died in February 1933. Any dark secrets he may have had, he took to the grave. Since his death, the case has become one of the most debated in criminal history. Dozens of books have been written advocating various theories. Some centered on William's guilt, others on his innocence. But the case remains stubbornly unsolved. Did William Herbert Wallace pull off the perfect crime and get away with murdering his wife? Let's review the evidence that implicates William in the murder of his wife. Motive If there's one thing reasonably clear in this baffling case, it's that the murder was not the result of a simple robbery gone wrong. While William told police that £4 was missing from his insurance collection tin, we only have his word for that. If money was taken during the murder, then the burglar replaced the lid and put the tin back where he'd found it. And aside from a small sum of money, nothing else in the house was taken. Julia Wallace's handbag was resting on the kitchen table next to where William says the insurance money was taken. The handbag contained money and silver, yet the burglar ignored it. The fact there was no sign of a break in and the murderer calmly left and locked the doors behind him all but rules out a burglar like the Anfield Housebreaker. And no such robber would have had a key or have been allowed entry by Julia Wallace, who was known to be quite paranoid about strangers. Some theorists have suggested the Qualtrough call was an attempt to lure William away from the house so they could steal his insurance money, but this doesn't stack up as a very credible plan. While it's true the chess club met in a public cafe, and its schedule was pinned up on the notice board, nobody could have sensibly planned a robbery based on it. The chess game schedule did show William was due to play a match, but it also showed that he had been scheduled to play several games in the previous months and not turned up. The chess club met twice a week, but by January 19th, William hadn't played since November 10th. Only one person knew if he would turn up for his chess match on January 19th to receive the message. And that was William himself. And if another culprit was somehow aware of this, why would they not simply commit the murder on the 19th when they knew William would be out? If not robbery, then who else would have motive to murder Julia? By 1931, she was an elderly woman who led a sheltered life, had few family or friends, and nobody has ever managed to come up with anyone who would have had a credible motive for Julia's murder beyond her husband. That this was personal is evidenced by the degree of overkill, a classic sign of a crime of passion. A burglar would have no cause to batter Julia so ferociously and for so long, 11 blows in total. It was really only William who knew her well enough to have developed such hostility. A conspicuous alibi. Central to the case against William is his contrived and strange alibi for the evening of the murder. Normally not the most friendly or talkative of men, during his hour or so to the non-existent address... William stopped and discussed his prospective meeting with at least a dozen strangers. He says he left his house around 6.45, caught the tram at 7.06. Both the conductor and the ticket inspector recalled how he was visibly anxious and repeatedly engaged them in conversation about exactly what route he should take in order to make his appointment. Both informed their passenger that they were not aware of such an address, but advised him which tram he should take next. As an insurance salesman and collections agent, it was his job to travel around Liverpool and he knew the city well. He would often make hundreds of collections in a given week, either by foot or by travelling on the tram and bus. He knew the surrounding area quite well. His friend and occasional violin tutor, Joseph Crewe, lived nearby. In fact, Crewe told police that William had visited him on many occasions. In light of what Crew told police, it didn't make much sense that William would need to repeatedly pester the conductor about what route to take. He noted that he didn't even take his advice anyway, because he seemingly knew exactly where he was going. After the tram, William talked to at least four local residents. A woman he stopped in the street, a man at a tram shelter, a young man and woman who lived at 25 Menlove Gardens West. None of them had ever heard of Menlove Gardens East, and North and South didn't even have a 25. William claimed in later statements that it then dawned on him that he was on Green Lane, where his friend Joseph Crewe lived. He called the house, but he was not home. Could it have been his intention all along to stop at Crewe's house, ensure the time was noticed, and thus give himself a stronger alibi? But with Crewe not there, William next stopped a police officer leaving the station at the top of Green Lane. Despite having confirmed the address didn't exist, William became strangely serious and volunteered the entire tale of his evening. The most important thing they discussed was the time. It's not quite 8 o'clock, he said. No, it's quarter 2, replied the officer. What better alibi than a policeman? And just as had done with all those he spoke to that evening, he fixed the time of the encounter. But he wasn't quite done. He ventured into a nearby post office and spoke to several more people about his appointment. They even checked their account books for any Qualtros in the area, but turned up nothing, which is when he gave up to return home. Then we have the curious business with the door locks. His neighbors were alerted to his predicament by the sound of him knocking on his back door. I've tried both the back and the front doors, and they're both locked against me, he told them. But with the Johnstons watching on, the back door to the kitchen then unlocked with very little effort. Some believe this to be a theatrical performance designed to ensure he would have had his next-door neighbors as witnesses when he entered the house and discovered Julia's body. Even if his struggle to open the doors could be explained by old and rusty locks as the defense maintained at the trial, it does not explain why he appeared to be so confounded by locks he used dozens of times a day or how the true assailant had entered the property without any sign of force and then locked the doors when they left. As for the mysterious Qualtro, police searched Liverpool and found five people with the name who all denied making the call. Police believed it was William who made the call. He had the opportunity. The phone booth was next to the stop where he caught his tram to the chess club meet, and the timing adds up. Whether he could have adopted a gruff voice sufficient to fool his acquaintance, the chess club captain, is far more debatable. It would be a risky move, and if he'd seen through the lie, William would have had a lot of explaining to do. But as with everything in this case, certainties are hard to come by. The pathologist John McFall had now revised his time down from 8pm to 6pm, a time which helped neither side as it was long before Julia had been seen alive by numerous witnesses. With the uncertainty about the time of death, this gave William a very slim, but not entirely impossible chance to have killed her either before or after his journey. However, he would have had to tidy himself up and change his clothes afterwards due to the amount of blood. However you move the puzzle pieces, it seems very improbable he could have had time to do this. Which poses the next question. An accomplice? Some students of the Wallace case believe he did not commit the killing, but he did hire somebody to do it for him. And there is some evidence that points in this direction. In Williams' police statements, he states that he returned straight home after giving up on his appointment with Quattro and did not talk to another person again though it seemed he could remember every other interaction from the evening. This was contradicted by 20-year-old typist Lillian Hill, who says she saw him around 8.35 p.m. talking to another man on Richmond Road close to his home. Hall had known the distinctively tall and angular-looking William by sight for years. She was friends with his next-door neighbor. If this encounter was simply an innocent exchange with a friend or a stranger, William would clearly have no reason to deny it. The accomplice theory would resolve some of the most perplexing evidence in this case. If William had supplied them with a key, it would explain how the killer had managed to enter the house without force and leave locking the doors. And if he told him what day he would be attending the chess club, the accomplice could have posed as the mystery caller and placed the call to set up the alibi. If William had somehow procured the services of a professional hitman, we'll probably never know his identity. But in recent years, some investigators into the case have suggested a possible suspect in the murder named Richard Gordon Perry. Perry was a young motoring enthusiast, an occasional amateur actor with a string of petty crimes to his name. At about 1 a.m. the morning after the murder, Perry drove into Atkinson's all-night garage. The garage attendant knew Perry from school and was alarmed at how agitated he seemed. Perry told him to wash his car down with the high-powered water hose. The attendant, who had always been somewhat afraid of him, did as he was told. There was an unspoken sense of menace about the encounter, and though he knew he was doing something wrong... The attendant didn't say anything. Then inside the car, he found a bloody glove, prompting the watching Perry to say, if the police got that, they would hang me. He then proceeded to tell him a confusing story about disposing of an iron bar down a drain. When he finished washing the car, Perry paid him five shillings and promptly drove off. This looks extremely suspicious, but there is a problem. The attendant didn't mention this incident until 1981, when he told it to Roger Wilkes for his radio documentary, Who Killed Julia?, He claimed he did not tell anyone at the time because he didn't want to be involved and because he was afraid. With Perry's death in 1980, he says he thought it was finally time to tell the truth. Perry's particularly interesting because William and his wife both knew him well. A few years before the murder, they worked together at an insurance company and Perry would frequently fill in for William during his many illnesses. Perry had actually been in the Wallace's house on countless occasions and even struck up a bit of a friendship with Julia. If William really had paid someone to kill his wife, then Perry was an obvious candidate. Julia Wallace was extremely paranoid about strangers and would never let anyone in the house she did not know. Had she answered the door to Perry that night and invited him in as a friend? Or had William provided Perry with a key to the house, which he then returned after the deed during the meeting observed by Lillian Hill? But there are some problems with this theory too. Perry was known to spend a lot of money. He owned an expensive car, which was rare for a man his age in 1930s Britain. But there's no evidence of him coming into a large sum of money or that William would even have the means to pay it. William himself also suggested Perry as a possible suspect during his police interviews, listing him as one of a handful of people Julia Wallace would have let into the house. It seems unlikely that he would have done this if the pair had plotted the murder together. Police also investigated Perry at the time and concluded he had a strong alibi. So what about a fatal coincidence? Famed crime writer P.D. James caused a stir in 2013 when she claimed to have done something that had eluded so many others. She said she solved the notoriously unsolvable case. James's theory revolved around a bold premise. What if the Quattro phone call and the murder were entirely unrelated? Quote, No rational person could possibly believe the coincidence that Wallace had decided to murder his wife on the same evening that a prankster had conveniently lured him from his home and provided him with an alibi. James set this theory up in a Sunday Times article on the case. She then detailed how she believes William committed the murder, but that his old coworker Perry made the call as a malicious prank. Perry had a reputation for dipping his fingers into the till, and it was thought that he'd siphoned off some of the collection's money during his time working alongside William. William may have informed his superiors about Perry's stealing, leading him to be quietly dismissed from the firm. To get back at him, Perry made the call to send the ailing 52-year-old on a wild search around Liverpool on a cold winter's night, mean-spirited but not part of a murder. The prank was in character for the young man who was prone to calling strangers with funny voices as a joke. If William was already planning to murder his wife, could he have used the happenstance of the Qualtro call to provide himself with an alibi? Whether genuine or not, he could exploit the call to prove he was elsewhere when the crime was committed. James's theory is compelling to a point, but it falls down by relying on some of the unlikely ideas the prosecution used in the 1931 trial. In order to explain the witnesses who say they saw Julia alive and well between 630 and 645, James says William may have dressed up as his wife to fool them. But he was a bony, six-foot-tall, middle-aged man with a mustache— Unless wearing a thick veil, it's hard to see how anyone could have been fooled into thinking he was a 5'3", plump, elderly woman like Julia. Now, let's review evidence that could mean William was innocent. A question of time. At the 1931 murder trial, the defense centered their case around whether William would have had enough time to commit the crime. The police's reconstruction of his movements had firmly placed him boarding the tram at 7.06. Working backwards, he had to leave his home no later than 6.50. The day after the murder, a 16-year-old milk delivery boy came forward to say he delivered milk that evening around 6.45 p.m., about five minutes before William would have had to leave. And during that time, he briefly spoke to Julia about their respective colds. This story was seemingly confirmed by the paper boy who glanced up at the clock on the nearby Holy Trinity Church as he made his way up the street on his usual rounds. It was just after 6.35 p.m., he said. A couple of minutes later, while delivering a paper, he saw the milkman at the Wallace's house. The two separate witness statements tally together, and one of them is backed up by the timing of the clock. Even the most generous of readings based on these witnesses gives William only about 10 minutes to have beaten Julia, tidied himself up, changed his clothes, hidden the murder weapon, and locked up to leave for the tram. The police did their best to try and expand the window. They got the boy to reconstruct his milk round and concluded he could have reached the Wallace's house as early as 6.31. This, they said, meant William had as much as 20 minutes. This argument may have been enough to convince a jury who already disliked William, but those who were more objective quickly overturned the verdict and William walked free. Despite dozens of books and endless debate, the simple fact that he simply did not have enough time to kill his wife remains the strongest reason to believe he didn't. Back to Perry. Noted crime writer Edgar Luskarton said of the Wallace case, any set of circumstances that is extracted from it will readily support two incompatible hypotheses. They will be equally consistent with innocence and guilt. It is preeminently the case where everything is cancelled out by something else. Lusgarten sums up the case against Richard Gordon Perry. All of the arguments used against him by those who believe William was involved equally apply if Perry acted alone or with an accomplice. Perry's name had been alluded to by numerous writers on the case since 1931, and even William mentioned him as a possible suspect. Author Jonathan Goodman built his classic 1969 book, The Killing of Julia Wallace, around Perry, who he only named as Mr. X for legal reasons. In 1981, a year after Perry died, Roger Wilkes's radio documentary was the first to publicly name him as the possible real culprit. The evidence can be stacked up against Perry quite convincingly. He was a flashy young man who had an expensive car and a lifestyle much beyond his means. He worked with William a few years earlier and knew the Wallaces and their home quite well. He was also aware that they often kept large sums of insurance money in the house. It was when Perry was filling in for his insurance rounds that William first noticed money was missing from his ledger. Perry had been dipping into the money and would do so on many occasions during the next year. William did inform his superintendent about the thefts, which likely led to a mutual agreement with Perry for him to discreetly leave the firm in late 1929. Most authors who promote the Perry theory believe the young man, perpetually short of money and with a string of petty criminal offenses to his name, decided to rob William for his insurance takings. Some authors promote a variation on this theory where Perry himself had an accomplice, another former employee called Richard Marsden. Perry frequented the Cottle Cafe, where he was an occasional player in an amateur dramatics group that rehearsed there. The Cottle Cafe was also where William's chess club met and where the chess match schedule showing he was due to play on the 19th of January was pinned to the notice board. Perry had a talent for putting on voices and would often make prank calls to people. If William himself had not posed as RM Qualtrough and made the call, then clearly Perry looks like a prime candidate. Most Perry advocates theorize he made the call to lure William away from the home. Using his car, he could have parked on the street, waiting for him to leave, so either he or an accomplice could call around to commit the burglary. Exactly how they gained entrance and exactly what transpired inside is unknown. Both Perry and proposed accomplice Marsden were known to Julia, so it's possible she let them in voluntarily, one distracting her as the other rifled through the kitchen for the insurance money. Perhaps Julia realized what had happened and tried to raise the alarm, which resulted in her death. Whatever actually occurred, Perry stopped off at the garage the next morning to wash down his car inside and out. Inside was the glove covered in blood. Perry mentioned disposing of an iron bar, which the Wallace's maid later reported was missing from the parlor. If the garage story is true, then it's hard to avoid the conclusion that Perry was directly involved in the murder of Julia Wallace. The exact nature of his involvement, or whether it included anyone else, like most of this baffling case, is likely to remain a mystery. The Neighbors Most writers on the Wallace case agree that Julia's killer must either have known her or had a key to the house. Two people who fit both criteria are the Wallace's neighbors, John and Florence Johnston. The couple were present in the backyard as William struggled to gain entry to his house just before he discovered Julia's body. As was common practice in the 1930s, the Johnstons had a key for their neighbor's house. They would have also been well-placed to observe if the Wallaces were home or not. In a 2001 news article, authors Tom Sleeman and Keith Andrews allege that John Johnston was the real murderer. They say they tracked down a man who befriended an elderly John Johnston when he was living in a care home in the 1960s. Johnston confessed to this man that he killed Julia in an attempt to rob the Wallaces' house. He believed Julia had left with William and killed her when she discovered him prowling around the house. Johnston was reportedly suffering from senile dementia at the time and may not have fully understood what he was saying. The Johnstons were also never regarded as suspects by the police. They did, however, move out of the area the very next day after the murder. This case is like a jigsaw puzzle where the last piece never quite fits. No matter how many times we reassemble it, it refuses to form a complete image. At the center of that fragmented picture remains the unknowable figure of William Herbert Wallace, flustered insurance salesman or criminal genius. It's fitting we leave the last, typically ambiguous, words to William himself. Sidney Schofield Allen, a junior defense counsel at the trial, was called to his side as he lay dying of kidney disease in 1933. His last words to him were, Well, we won, Sonny, didn't we? And that is the case of the killing of Julia Wallace, an impossible murder. I wanted to try something a little different this week. I hope you guys enjoyed. I did take a break last week and I think I'm going to continue to do that and just do the podcast bi-weekly like we used to as I sort of slowly return to, to normal life and look at other ways to do things. It just gives me a bit more time. So going forward, I will be every second week. And I am considering doing a different type of podcast focused more on personal life and personal philosophies around dating. It would be a take on a a podcast that I developed a while ago with a friend that ended up not going. And if I decide to do that, I will very likely put it through the Miss and Miss feed just to get a sense of people's interest in it and to not have to create an entirely different feed for something that may or may not work out so if I do that it will not be in place of episodes for miss and miss it will just show up in your feed and it will be clearly labeled so if you have no interest in that you can just skip over that but I wanted to let everyone know in the case that that starts to show up I hope everyone is doing well. Thank you for listening. As you know, you can find us at Miss and Miss Podcast on Instagram and Twitter, and you can reach me personally at kcath23 on Twitter. I will see you soon.